0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This is an RNZ podcast.
2: Piki Mai Kake Mai. I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Tonight is part two of my retrospective, where I'm replaying some of my favourite stories. I mentioned last week that I'd been on holiday in Kaikoura, where you can't help but notice the wide, white shore platform. It was once part of the intertidal, but was uplifted and now sits high and dry, thanks to the 2016 earthquake. Tonight's theme is The Big Ones. So here's a 2017 story I made about the masses of science produced after that massive earthquake. It's called Complexity Six months of Kaikoura earthquake science. Just after midnight on the 14th of November 2016, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck Kaikoura and the northeastern coast of the South Island. The earthquake was long and strong, it lasted nearly two minutes began near Waio in North Canterbury and ruptured for 170 kilometres north into Cook Strait. It was widely felt throughout New Zealand and had a dramatic impact on the local landscape. Scientists from a range of institutions headed out into the field and onto their computers to find out what happened, and they are still hard at work collecting data and analysing information. Earthquake geologists, seismologists, geodesists radar specialists, landslide experts and geophysicists, amongst others, are helping build a picture of a very complicated earthquake. The first scientific papers on the quake are appearing, and although there is still a lot more research to come, I thought six months after the quake was a good time to reflect on what we've learnt so far. To begin with, scientists thought just a handful of faults had contributed to the quake, but as time has gone on, that number has risen. So do we yet know exactly how many faults ruptured? Here's GNS earthquake geologist Russ Van Dissen.
3: Well, that's kind of a how-long-is-a-piece-of-string question. There were at least uh, almost two dozen faults that have names that ruptured, and over half of them had quite large displacements over, over a metre and a half or more. And both with regards to the number and their varied orientations, it, it kind of is a world record as far as complexity and number.
2: While geologists believe at least 21 faults, and probably more, were involved in the earthquake, only some of them played a major role.
4: Here's Ian Hamling from GNS. From my point of view, there's probably around maybe 12, maybe 14 of the push. So these are faults that have contributed significantly to the overall energy that was released. Then, what the field geologists have probably got a higher number in the sort of low 20s, and that's because what obviously they see on the ground are sometimes more sort of superficial features that have, obviously they are faults, but they weren't necessarily contributing a lot of energy to the overall earthquake.
2: In a recent paper, geologists laid out some ideas as to how the earthquake happened. It was a complex four stage process that began in the southwest. And finished 170 or so kilometres away to the northeast. The epicentre or starting point was in the Humps Fault Zone near Waio. This initial high energy rupture was shallow, just 15 kilometres below the surface. During the first 20 seconds, first the hump and then the Hundali Fault ruptured in a northeasterly direction. Then, at about 20 seconds in, the maximum energy release jumped to another fault lying about 25 kilometres further north. Faults here also began rupturing to the northeast for a further 20 seconds. Between 40 to 70 seconds after the quake started, the energy generated by the quake probably spread out across a number of faults, both on land and off the coast. The scientists aren't sure of the exact details here, but there was movement in many directions, with some faults sliding past one another horizontally and others thrusting up vertically. Then, around 60 to 70 seconds into the quake, there's another burst of energy release as big faults, such as the Kekarengu Fault and the Needles Fault in Cook Strait, failed. Nearly two minutes after it began, this massive event finally stopped. GNS seismologist Anna Kayser.
5: It's still being investigated. It's very, very complex and difficult to unravel. But one of the interesting things is that the dominant energy that was released was actually released north of Kaikoura. So even though it started in North Canterbury, most energy was released north of Kaikoura. Actually, about seventy seconds after the um, the earthquake first started, my colleagues, so, um, Bill Fry, Caroline Holden, Yoshi Kaneko, are, are modelling quite a lot of slip and the um, associated up near the Kikaringu Fault, and this is also where we, um, where we observe the largest surface ruptures. So we think faults in this part of the rupture area were responsible for generating that, that really strong energy release.
2: The Kekarengu Fault was one of the significant players and experienced some of the greatest movements. It's an area that Russ Van Dyssen knows very well, and while much of what happened in this quake is a bit of a mystery, he already had a good idea of what would happen on the Kekarengu Fault during a large earthquake.
3: I discovered a couple of the faults that ruptured you know, 20 years ago and had been working on the, the area for you know, several decades. It, it's, it's as if the area that I study exploded.
2: Tell me a bit more about that, because one of the things that's become clear in the six months since the earthquake is the sheer complexity of what happened down there. So tell me a bit about that, what you were seeing on the ground.
3: The fault rupture of the Kekeringu fault was was hugely impressive for the, the 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 size the ten twelve meters of strike slip displacement and just the very visual impact. So you you asked you know what, what was my initial impression of the complexity? It actually was just very inspiring to see just nature in total action. The complexity of the rupture actually didn't hit me a great deal because I was actually working on the bit of the fault that was the well-behaved bit. You know, it was 90 kilometres of rupture. We had it in the seismic hazard model, like 90 kilometres of rupture with large displacements. So the bit that I was working on was, I guess, the bit that we got right. <laughs> okay, so the se- tell me a bit about the seismic hazard model. That was
2: you anticipating what might happen under different sized earthquakes?
3: More or less. It's, it's an attempt to to describe the levels of shaking that may happen uh, throughout time largely for the building code so the faults that we know about are put into that model as earthquake sources, the the size of the earthquakes, how often they, they happen. And for the Kekeringu fault, we had it at a, mag, a, a large magnitude 7, happening quite frequently.
2: So that behaved as predicted, but in many other ways, this earthquake hasn't behaved as predicted.
3: Oh, very much so. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's definitely a game of two halves on the faulting story. Is Some of them behaved as forecast or as, as foreseen, others were there were just a huge number of surprises especially in the southern part south of Kaikoura. So have events like this happened on the Kaikoura coast before Russ? Even before the earthquake Professor Tim Little and I were working on the Kekeringu Fault a, a year before the earthquake and we found out that uh, you know there had been three big earthquakes on the fault in the last 1200 years. Now that uh, to the layperson, might not seem by much, but for for us geologists, that's really quite quick. A big earthquake on the Kekeringu Fault every three or four hundred years is is as fast as most any fault in New Zealand. The rarity is it ruptured with faults down in the south that move every few thousand or ten thousand years. So the specific ensemble of faults that ruptured is rare.
2: As Russ walked the ground, he could easily see large visible movements of up to 6 metres that had occurred between the two sides of the Kekarengu Fault. Deeper down in the fault, it seems to have moved up to 25 metres, which is huge. Now, to accurately measure all the movements that happened both at the surface and at depth, other scientists have relied on precision equipment such as GPS stations and also the use of satellites.
1: I'm Søren Reinstotir. I'm a dear scientist at the Inner Science. I map it out with GPS how the Earth has moved in the earthquake. And this is allowing you to measure the Earth's movement in terms of what, millimetres? Yeah. So we actually saw Auckland moving three millimetres in the earthquake and Chatham Islands moving three millimetres in the earthquake. Can you paint me
2: a bigger picture of the ground displacement that has happened? Because some of it's quite significant.
1: Yeah, I think we've had over six metres of displacement where uh, we had the largest measurement and... That's with GPS, so INSAR would actually see a bit larger displacement. We had both horizontal and vertical, so we were seeing up to 2 metres of uplift versus 6 metres of horizontal, so it's 3D displacement. It's not uh, yeah, just the map moving, it's a, it's a pattern of deformation. And some sites were actually subsiding.
2: Ah, so something's been down, not just up.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's actually, when you look at the map, it's just, Insane. Can I use that word? It's just um, we actually draw like how the site moved with a vector or like an arrow, and the arrows are basically pointing everywhere because there were so many faults that were participating in this earthquake. So it is a very, very complex pattern that we saw.
2: Is the ground still moving?
1: Absolutely. Um, it is uh, slowing down in time. So right after the earthquake, there was actually quite a lot of displacement on on the sites that we were looking at. And it was interesting because the sites in Cape Campbell area were actually moving up significantly as well as, um, I guess, closer to Wellington would be the way to say it. Uh, But the coastal sites were actually moving seaward and not much vertically. And so this is something we just want to try to understand better.
2: Ian Hamling uses radar information from a system called INSA.
4: So it stands for uh, Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar. So it's a remote sensing technique where we can sort of measure large-scale ground displacements using satellite radar data. So we've got the European Space Agency and also the Japanese Space Agency. And so they've got uh, satellites that orbit roughly every sort of 6 to 12 days in the case of the European mission. And what that allows us to do is so every six days we can take two of these images. And if we take the difference, then that generates these very, very high resolution maps, maybe 30 meters on the ground of, again, how the ground's moved relative to the satellite. And so what happened is within sort of 36 hours of the earthquake, we were able to get some of these images from the European Space Agency and from JAXA. And very quickly then we can map out sort of the scale of the of the earthquake we could see yeah, very quickly which some of the major faults that ruptured and then we can use this data in collaboration with the GPS to try to generate models to then estimate how much the faults have slipped in order to generate that sort of size of ground displacement that were, was observed.
2: The satellite radar system is a set of eyes in the sky and it can reveal things such as hidden faults that leave no trace on the surface for the geologists to find. It has also revealed that this earthquake jumped significant distances
4: between faults. When you look at the, the fault network that's ruptured, what you find is that there, some of these structures are apparently separated by sort of 20 kilometres or more. And in convent, our conventional understanding from past observations, from paleoseismic records and also from numerical models, if you have a, an earthquake starts along a fault, if it uh, comes to a gap of more than normally five kilometres, that would stop the earthquake. And what we've obviously seen here is that the, fu- the, the rupture has continued through. Now, some of this has turned out there are these what we call blind faults, and some of these have helped link the structures at depth. So although there's not much evidence of slip at the surface, at depth we see maybe up to two metres of slip on these faults, and also, what you find is when you look at the stresses that would have been induced by this, when the rupture started in the south, some of this would have really put a lot of stress on the faults sort of ahead of it, and that kind of then cascades through, which has enabled this rupture to essentially yeah, to jump through these sort of this really complex network of faults.
2: That's pretty significant, jumping 20 kilometres.
4: Yeah, certainly. And looking at globally, there's yeah, you know, there's not really been any example. Of or such an obvious example of where these sort of faults have been able to jump to such a degree over a very complex network.
2: There are many things that still have scientists
4: puzzled. On top of the the complexity, as we see these areas around sort of on along the Kaikoura coast, where we've had this essentially a block of of rock that's been chucked up out of the ground by up to eight metres and shunted south by by around four metres, and this is still posing a conundrum, I guess, into actually how on earth you can actually kinematically get this to happen during an earthquake.
2: Anna Kayser at GNS says that there was a lot of energy involved in the Kaikoura earthquake, which was strongly felt in places as far afield as Wellington.
5: The Kaikoura earthquake was obviously a very complex earthquake, and it generated a complex pattern of ground motions throughout the Upper South Island and um, in the Wellington region as well. So, for instance, we saw a, a very strong accelerations recorded close to the epicentre in Wai'o, and that's where everything kicked off. I mean, we had a, a, an instrument basically right on top of the first fault that failed. This was the Hump's fault, um, and this generated something that's well over 1G, possibly up closer to 3G.
2: So compare that to something else for me to give me a sense of how strong that is.
5: Right, so let's compare, we traditionally compare it to acceleration due to gravity. So, for example, if you're in a roller coaster, you might experience more than acceleration due to gravity, so that's 1G. Um, and, of course, you might experience that in an earthquake, but you wouldn't be strapped in, so you'd experience as a, quite a violent, jolting um, movement. Whereas the, one of the interesting um, things about this earthquake is we still um, we had a lot of damage close to the faults that erupted in these South Island towns, but we also saw some damage a bit further away in Wellington. In Wellington, the ground machine could be quite different, it's a bit further away from the rupture, and we have more of a rolling type um, motion, so not the sharp jolts. In fact, the peak ground acceleration in Wellington was relatively moderate, um, similar to that experienced in the 2013 earthquakes, Um, but the difference this time was that it was a massive earthquake that generated these really strong rolling motions, which were particularly damaging to these mid-rise or taller structures
2: which is why the Wellington waterfront took quite a hammering.
5: Yeah, that's right. So you've got a number of... I mean, you do experience the earthquake quite differently depending on where you are. These types of rolling motions are enhanced by soft soils that you might see closer to the waterfront. So the ground motions there are quite different than they would be, say, on rock. So people who are um, at home in a house that was located on rock might not have thought that the earthquake was quite as strong or quite as big as the people downtown. <laughs>
2: Let's just go back to that peak ground acceleration. One of the things that I've seen in, in your paper was a talk about a trampolining effect. Can you just, just explain what that is?
5: So we recorded this very strong ground motion near Waio in the epicentral region and if you look at the seismic record it has some very unusual characteristics so you have kind of a periodic signal so it's sort of coming systematically through time and you have a very strong asymmetry so the up motions are much much greater than the down motions now that's suggestive of a trampoline effect which is when you basically get something thrown up into the air with acceleration greater than than acceleration due to gravity and then you you, you start coming down and then you, you suddenly get violently thrown up into the air again as you collide with the ground movement from push, basically pushing up from above, uh, from below. sorry. Um, and so this results in this, this, this kind of asymmetric seismic record. We saw this in Canterbury and some of the strongest um, accelerations recorded there. And We've seen this again in Waiyo and it requires just a bit more investigation to understand how it originates, if it's originating from this near-surface soils interacting with stiffer material below, for instance, or whether there's some other... Um, complicating factor with the um, structure that the instrument is located on.
2: That 3G record, is that a bit of a world record?
5: Um, it's not a world record, but it is um, the highest acceleration we've recorded in New Zealand. Um, anything that's recorded over 1G is a, is a very, very strong ground motion, um, and it certainly would be extremely frightening to the people who uh, experienced it.
2: From your point of view, what have been some of the most interesting things about this earthquake
5: yeah I mean one of the most interesting things is the complexity of the earthquake both in space and in um, and in time so you 've got a, a complicated series of, of of fault ruptures and exactly how they were initiated is a question that we need to answer so is it like dominoes falling where you essentially get dominoes falling one after the other, or is it um, more like you're moving something beneath these faults that's that's leading to dominoes um, cascading. So my colleagues are certainly heavily involved in researching these questions.
2: Some of the most dramatic impacts of the earthquake were seen along the Kaikoura coast. Here's Kate Clark from GNS.
6: I study the coastline around New Zealand, mostly along the Hikurangi Margin, looking for evidence of past earthquakes. And when this earthquake happened, we very quickly realised there'd been a lot of coastal uplift. And we've seen about 110 kilometres of the coastline was deformed. So most of that went up. There were some areas that didn't move. Uh, there were some areas that went down a little. But overall, the dominant signal was uplift and um, quite variable uplift as well. So what kind of heights are we talking about? The maximum that we recorded in the field was around five metres, so that's right by the Papatea Fault. In in other areas, approximately two to three metres, so much of the Cape Campbell area was sort of varying between three metres to half a metre. Much of the coastline just south of the Clarence River down to... Uh, Half Moon Bay, that was around two to three metres, up to four metres. Kaikoura Peninsula was around one metre. And the area south of Kaikoura, down to sort of the Goose Bay, oaru area, that was around two metres. So, yeah, variable, very, very changeable along the coastline.
2: The obvious question around the coast, of course, is the tsunami. And it seems like we're looking at a bigger tsunami than we had realised at the time.
6: Yes, yes. So at the time, we saw from the Kaikoura tide gauge so the instrumental measurement was that there was a tsunami of a couple of meters Uh, and then subsequently to that while we were out in the field so surveying along the coastline and also talking to local residents we saw evidence and heard anecdotes that there was actually a tsunami of several meters of run-up along much of the coastline so between five to seven meters along parts of the coastline south of Kaikoura. Uh, We found evidence up uh, near Ward Beach that there was a tsunami of about four to five metres up there. So certainly if there hadn't been that amount of significant coastal uplift, there would have definitely been greater tsunami inundation.
2: And the fact it was low tide helped as well, I think.
6: low tide and coastal uplift.
2: So, six months after the Kaikoura earthquake, what's happening now? There have been more than 16,000 aftershocks, and counting... And all that shaking set in motion some other events that are still unfolding. Here's GNS geophysicist Laura Wallace.
0: Well, one of the things that I specialize in studying are these things called slow slip events, or we often call them silent earthquakes, and they're actually slower movements along a fault line. So, in an earthquake, you have a sudden movement of meters in a matter of seconds. A slow earthquake or a slow slip event involves often, you know, tens of centimeters of movement over a period of weeks to days to years. And one of the most surprising things about the Kaikoura earthquake is that we were able to observe on the the GeoNet network of GPS sites in the North Island that the Kaikoura earthquake actually spurred on or triggered very large slow-slip events on, uh, over very large parts of the Hikarangi subduction zone, which is the plate boundary beneath the North Island. That plate boundary, the Hikarangi subduction zone, accommodates westward subduction of the Pacific plate beneath the the North Island, and it's probably New Zealand's largest plate boundary zone, and certainly its fastest slipping and most active. So this was uh, really one of the other very surprising things and and unexpected kind of consequence of the the Kaikoura earthquake. It, It affected parts of the New Zealand plate boundary, you know, 200 to 600 kilometers away from it and um, so it's really exciting and it's opened up a lot of uh, really important questions um, about why this why this has happened.
2: So how soon after the Kaikoura earthquake did it start moving and how much has it moved?
0: Yeah, so we noticed um, GPS sites up in Gisborne pretty immediately. Um, you could see that they had started moving easterly. They started moving more rapidly to the east, which is typically what we see in these slow slip events. And along the east coast, going from, say, Gisborne down to Southern Hawks Bay to Parangahau, we saw on the order of 10... Uh, to 30 millimeters or or one to three centimeters of eastward movement of those sites over a period of of about two two to three weeks after the earthquake. And we're also seeing... A similar thing uh, down in, in the Capiti Coast area just after the earthquake, another slope slip event has started started up beneath the Capiti Coast area, and those sites have moved moved east on the order of a few centimeters as well. And a few centimeters to most people doesn't sound like a lot, but a few centimeters is actually a lot because then you know that that can be about a year's worth of plate motion, you know, happening over a short period of time like that. So, um, and yes, yeah, so in Gisborne it was really an immediate thing. We saw that very quickly. Um, we saw the slow slip migrate down to Parangahau, um over, over about a one- or two-week period, and then we also noticed the Kapiti event pretty quickly as well. So that Parangahau one, that's stopped now? Yeah, the one off Parongahau in the, the east coast, the Gisborne and, and Southern Hawks Bay area, that only took about um, one to three weeks to happen, and that stopped. But the uh, slow slip going on beneath the Kapiti coast area is still ongoing, and it's still ongoing at a pretty steady rate, and we're, we're really keeping an eye on that right now. So see how that evolves.
2: The slow slip earthquake off the east coast released enough energy to be equivalent to a magnitude 7.1 earthquake, while the Kapiti slow slip earthquake has so far equaled a magnitude seven. So did the Hikarangi subduction zone move during the earthquake as well in these later slow-slip events?
0: That's a bit of a controversial issue about, about this earthquake. There are certainly a lot of scientists who think there was significant movement on the Hikurangi plate boundary beneath the northern part of the South Island, so beneath the Marlborough region, and also near Kaikora. Um, and then there's there's others who think there's not a lot of evidence for that. So that's a bit of a controversy there. I personally think it's certainly possible that it did move in the earthquake. We're still trying to tease through the data. What has been happening on, on that southern part of the Hikurangi subduction zone beneath the northern South Island. After the earthquake is also very interesting. We see evidence now from both GPS data from and from InSAR data for slip or movement on that part of the subduction zone beneath the northern South Island. Um, and and this has been also very surprising, and I think may be um, suggest uh, the likelihood that the earthquake may have involved rupture on the subduction zone.
2: This afterslip event on the subduction zone is taking place 25 kilometres beneath Marlborough. The plate boundary has so far moved nearly half a metre, equivalent to a magnitude 7.3 earthquake. But not all of the plate boundary has moved.
0: Beneath the southern North Island, we have um, the plate boundary. We know from you know the last sort of 20 years of GPS measurements, we can measure movement of the land, and we can determine what's happening on the plate boundary beneath. Because of that, we, we've known that the plate boundary beneath most, much of the southern North Island is locked up, and that's building up stress that probably. Will be released in a future earthquake one day. We don't know exactly when. You know, it could be two years from now. It could be a hundred years from now. <laughs> we really don't know when. But that doesn't appear to have undergone any movement following the Kaikoura earthquake. So we're we're keeping an eye on that part of the plate boundary as well.
2: Another ongoing consequence of the Kaikoura earthquake are the landslides. Immediately after the quake, GNS Engineering geologists Sally Dello and Chris Massey were involved in assessing public safety and finding safe routes into Kaikoura, as State Highway 1 north and south of the township was blocked by slips. Since then they've been keeping an eye on debris dams, where lakes formed behind the slips, and mapping the thousands of slides, both on the ground and by comparing satellite images from before and after the
7: event. There are two main things we're trying to do. One is to map the actual landslide distribution, And that's all of the landslides that have been triggered by the earthquake across the whole region. And the main area affected is 3,600 kilometres squared. And the wider area is in the 10,000 square kilometres. So it's a huge area. We've mapped now over 6,000 individual landslides, but we're only about 60% through. The reason we're trying to map those is so that we can kind of look at the overall distribution and relate it back to what caused that to happen, so where the faults were, what the ground shaking was. And then we can look at the how that material that's been generated by the earthquake, by the landslides, how that then cascades from the source area where the landslides started out to the sea or rivers and eventually into the sea. So the, the main controls then um, that we've identified so far on the landslide distribution are proximity to fault, so how close the actual landslides are to the surface ruptures that we had. And there's lots of those, over 20 mapped surface ruptures at the moment. Which They're finding them all the time. And the uh, slope angle. So, you know, the steeper the slope, the more likely a landslide is going to occur. So if you look at the pattern of the landslides and overlay the faults on there, then you can see quite clear relationship.
8: Which is quite interesting because I've done a lot of work looking at historic earthquakes in New Zealand. And the convention's always been that the landslides will be concentric around the epicentre. Like you throw a stone in a pond and they radiate out, so we're seeing something quite different here. And it kind of makes me curious, if we go back and look at some of the historical earthquakes now, will we be able to see the pattern?
2: Is the underlying rock type important?
7: Very important. So, you know, weaker rocks versus stronger rocks. So down in the Kaikoura area, we essentially have two main rock types. I mean, I'm simplifying, but we have two main rock types. One is greywacky, which is the material that people in Wellington are used to, the sandstone, very fractured very jointed you know and the other one is the um what people refer to as papa which is the kind of um sandstone siltstone very fine grained like a gray bluey gray in color and there is a a third one down there which most people will be kind of aware of which is the chalk which is where the big landslides that have been in the media do you get different kinds of
2: slips on that different kind of rock
7: yes you do yeah very much so what we tend to have in the uh, gray, wacky materials are what we call debris avalanches, so if you can imagine a snow avalanche, but rocks so there's like rolling, bouncing, sliding flowing, you know, it's a real
8: mess It ends up being a big pile of gravel <laughs> and the weaker rocks, are the, the papa, is much less permeable so what happens, it's really obvious with the landslide dams, when you have the big pile of gravel the water goes through the dam and we've got lots of photos showing the, the water piping through the, the dam phase, whereas the, the papa, the, the weaker rock as much as it's permeable, so the water's got to bank up behind the landslide and then come over the top. Comes down more as a big lump.
7: It does. Like and we call them, an intact blocks. So you kind of essentially, you may even have structure in there. So it looks like you've just taken the rock from one place. And- put it in another where with the wacky, it's kind of like all jumbled up and goes long distances and that's the key message is that the greywacky failures they tend to go quite long long distances because they're they're kind of just broken and they come from higher you know some of them are from steeper slopes where the 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 papa landslides tend to be more deep seated like the bases are deeper and they tend to be intact and but they, they're still huge i mean some of the volumes like that the seafront slide the estimate there is around 17 million cubic metres uh, of debris and the um, hapuku landslide which is in Greywaki is the biggest one we have mapped and that's uh, 25 million. How is
2: the weather helping you in this because uh, <laughs> I imagine things are changing all the time.
8: Well that's one of the challenges and it, it's part of the recovery because um, you get a big weather system come through and it dumps a heap of rainfall and suddenly you've got a heap more landslides so you've got a um, the earthquake is shaking the hills so that they're all quite loose and open so you get a dump heap of rainfall there's more rocks and soil comes down, and being rain, it's all very wet and sloppy, and it's a very different style of landslide or debris that ends up um, on the road, and we know that after Cyclone Debbie, the road south of Kaikoura was closed by debris flows, and the road north was also affected by debris flows. So you think with the landslides for the Kaikoura earthquake have finished, they haven't. They've made that whole coast much more vulnerable to landslides, and part of our role was to understand how much more vulnerable that is. So one of the ideas there is that the, um, the amount of rainfall required to set off landslides is actually much lower now than it was before. So it's kind of what's that threshold for rainfall now and how will that change through the years? And that rainfall okay, it's just, it starts mobilising sediment. Where does that sediment go? It goes down the rivers, so it compromises bridges because it can raise the bed level. The very fine sediment ends up on the sea, so you've got a fishery there, a power and a crayfish fishery, what all, all that sediment in the inshore fishery, what does that do to the fishery? So there's a whole lot of questions about how much sediment's going to be delivered and what's the impact of that on infrastructure and on resources. It's happened before, it's going to happen again. How we manage it and identify the risks and keep people safe is part of why we're doing this research.
2: A big thank you to all the GNS scientists I spoke with. Sally Dello, Chris Massey, Laura Wallace, Sigrun heinstottir Ian Hambling... Russ Van Dissen, Kate Clark, and Anna Kaiser. That story was recorded in 2017. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 1st of April 2021. It featured one of my favourite stories from the very extensive Our Changing World archive. You can find said archive and listen again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash world if you click on the Collections tab, you'll find a whole set of earthquake stories. The website is also where you can sign up for our free email newsletter. The link to subscribe is at the bottom of the webpage. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Ngā mihi.